Welcome to the Reform Rookie Podcast. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. And so? Worthy vicar, do we find anything here of relics? By faith man lives and is made righteous, not by what he does for himself. Be it adoration of relics, singing of masses, pilgrimages to Rome, purchase of pardon for his sins, but by faith in what God has done for him already through his son. Dr. Martin, if you leave the Christian to live only by faith, if you sweep away all good works, all these glorious things you dismiss as mere crutches, what will you put in their place? Christ. Man only needs Jesus Christ. So, as I said, we are in Leviticus chapter 4, and um, last week we had a very interesting conversation. It turned out to be a lot of questions and answers, and I really enjoyed it. I hope everyone else enjoyed it. Um, hope it was useful and got you thinking about things that perhaps you haven't thought about before or fleshed some of those ideas out. I hope it gave you more questions that we can address at some other point in the future. Um, we're getting back into chapter 4 and trying to kind of pick up sort of where I left off uh, a couple weeks prior, or three weeks prior, right, because we had Resurrection Sunday, so I think there was a, um, a, a few weeks before we were in it. Uh, I don't know if you guys remember at this point, uh, being a few weeks, at, at this, uh, we had talked about, um, we had mentioned Deuter Deuteronomy 24.16, where it talks about the um, the fathers won't be put to death for the sins of the sons, and the sons won't be put to death for the sins of the fathers, right? And this is God placing a uh, a restriction on um, He's putting a restriction on the state in terms of um, bringing about justice, well, bringing about consequences for sins. Um, but the, the person who sins, they will be punished. But as we consider Leviticus 4, it seems like that doesn't seem to be the case. Because here, if Deuteronomy 24.16 says each one will die for their own sins, yet here we see a sacrifice that's being offered um, on behalf of uh, a high priest who has sinned unintentionally and yet has brought guilt on the entire congregation, right? Or we could see the entire congregation um, sinning and bringing everyone in, into that guilt, and they need to be uh, covered, atoned for. Uh, the place of worship, God's dwelling place, um, needs to be purified. And so it seems like, well, there is... <laughs> People are dying or, or risking being put to death for the sins of another. And this is where we have to understand that God does not restrict himself <laughs> the way he restricts sinful man when it comes to executing justice. Um, the judicial restraint on the civil government doesn't apply to God. Because of original sin, we should all be aware, we're all, uh, you know, going to a reformed church under, you know, a an understanding of some of these things but because of original sin all mankind stands condemned before God and this is something that needs to be understood it needs to be understood in our witnessing we we talk about 
Um, we talk to people, you know, we're going on the afternoon uh, study, going through the way of the master, and we're talking about Ray Comfort and Kirk Cameron and, and bringing the Ten Commandments uh, to a witnessing situation and showing how an individual has sinned. Uh, and yet there's the fact that all of mankind is plunged into sin because of our representative uh, Adam. And so we all stand condemned and we all need a savior. And so you can point that out corporately, but it's you know very effective usually just individually. Most people don't, especially nowadays, they don't want to hear about corporate sin. They don't want any part of that. Um, and that's part of the Enlightenment. <laughs> I'll let Lawrence talk about it another time. Uh, we think very much individually. We don't want to think corporately. But we recognize that nations go to war. So an entire nation, you might not have decided to go to war with the opposing nation, and yet you are at war. And so we've, we've talked about that. And so mankind is at war with God, right? And so uh, they stand condemned because they're rebels against a perfect God. And it's his grace, his merciful self-restraint that protects men at all in history. The fact that any of us are breathing air right now is a mercy of God. All right? That's a common grace. And God distinguishes between judicial guilt in his eyes and in the eyes of sinful civil rulers. So rulers may not execute civil judgment against those who are judicially innocent of public crimes, right? Just because they might be guilty of other things, <laughs> if there's a particular crime that they have been found innocent of, they must release them, right? Um, I don't know, maybe if you were trying to remember if this was just my remembrance of a childhood memory or hearing of other people's childhood memory <laughs> getting a spanking you didn't deserve I'm like yeah but there were probably other things i missed that you deserve the spanking for anyone have that growing up <laughs> no one want to talk about it okay <laughs> but we got spankings right no it was my brother's fault and i got blamed oh, yes. ashley says yes yeah. i have been the victim <laughs> i was um yeah <laughs> yeah mm -hmm. You know, following her, like, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. No. I was yeah. really shut out. Oh, yeah. You were the middle child? No, not really. He says no. He's like, you were there. He's like, no. <laughs> <laughs> because I just have a better his sense be, of history. Being jealous of my baby twin sisters. Oh. Yeah, that's always the baby it's sisters. They took you as well. Right. So we have those times where we might have received um, things that we, a punishment we didn't deserve, but maybe encouraged by our parents to remind us that, you know, there were other things that we were probably guilty of that we didn't get a spanking for. So, but rulers may not execute civil judgments against those who are judicially innocent of public crimes. And so that goes for children of parents or parents of children. Each one will have to give an account for their own crimes. Gary North also points out that the sins of rulers, and this is, this is interesting in, in terms of thinking about our society and, and thinking about the, the degradation of it, uh, thinking about, well, let me just say it first. Um, he points out that the sins of the rulers, both civil and ecclesiastical in the church, it reflects the, the preferences of the people. The public tolerates rulers' particular sins because they tolerate sin in the camp, and they don't want sanctions for those sins. Um, he also states that sinful magistrates need judicial restraints for righteousness, peace, and freedom to be protected. God doesn't need that same restraint. So um, 
there is the, uh, the, the reality that sons do die for the sins of their fathers, uh, because we all do, because of the representative sin of our father, Adam. And Romans 5.14, death reigned from Adam to Moses, right? And so it's only biblical law that prevents a state from executions of sons for fathers, except in the case of sacrilege. And he does a whole appendix on uh, sacrilege and stealing or violating uh, that which belongs to God. So um, the verse about the sons not being punished for the fathers was for judicial purposes, that injustice wasn't going on, or people were Right, okay. right. I mean, you, you think about that, um, how many times, I'm trying to think of a, a modern example, but you'd hear about it in like old time history, old time history. Is there another kind of history? <laughs> and you'd hear about it in, in the history books, like uh, there might be an uprising, a rebellion, um, maybe like a, you know, a coup to overturn, you know, and overthrow a king or a monarchy or something like that. And they would kill their children as well, <laughs> kind of wiping out anyone who um, might come back to avenge or might have a rightful claim on the throne. Now they might have... Um, complaints, they might have accusations against those who were in that position of authority, um, but they don't have the right to take the life of, of the children. And probably in most of those cases, they didn't have a particular right to take the life of the king. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Most people don't talk about that, right? Except for the, you know, opposing parties. But yeah, that idea... Um, that's the bloodthirst of us. You know, we see victimization, we see terrorism, we see families killed in 9-11, right? Um, you know, men, women, and children indiscriminately. They're on a plane, they have a death sentence because they were on that plane. And so the idea of Trump is kill the terrorists, kill their families. Don't leave anyone to come back and start more trouble. That is horrific, right? That's not, that's not biblical justice. And too many people are just like, better them than us, right? Let's keep the war over there in their backyard. Meanwhile, God actually has all sorts of law regarding how warfare is to be conducted, you know, and how combatants are to be treated and how the innocent are to be treated. And so there's all sorts of rules about that, about what just war should look like. But yeah, that would be that would be an excellent example of that sort of uh, mentality. Kill kill their families as well. Can I ask you a question? Sure. Wait, what is war supposed to look like? I'm sorry, because I lost topic. No, that's okay. Uh, it is in topic. When it comes to war, when when he was telling them about war, and Gary North, uh, he goes into explaining like, as far as it goes, judicially, we just said. You know, the state is not allowed to punish the sons for the sins of the father and the fathers for the sins of the sons. Each one has to pay for their own crimes. Yet when we look at, um, you know, the book of Exodus, right, um, and then coming into uh, Joshua, where they are taking the land of Canaan, they're killing everybody, right? Um, in that particular case, this was, you know, um, we talk about holy war. You know, um, the, the, the Muslim faith, you know, talks about jihad, talks about holy war. And so you have people, just like in Christianity, you have different beliefs about, you know, theology and stuff like that. You have that in the Muslim 
uh, faith as well. And some would be moderate and some be like, oh no, we're not supposed to do jihad. And some say, yes, we're absolutely supposed to do jihad. And so that's another conversation. But it, and for a jihad, they can do the holy war. They can do pretty much whatever they need to. Um, and so what does warfare look like in biblical warfare? It should be defensive. First of all, for the most part, there was that we had a question a, a number of weeks ago about um, how do we know what parts are applicable today? And here, and, and there's, a, there's a number of ways of, of determining that. I use that happen to use a specific example here of like you have specific instructions, right? The Israelites are told to take the land of Canaan and to um, destroy the inhabitants. But they've been told these people have polluted the land. They have sinned against me. When he gives them the law in Leviticus, near the end of Leviticus, he says, you know, like in Leviticus 18 and stuff, he says, you know, don't do this, don't do this, do this. He talks about all the sexual perversion stuff that was probably involved with pagan, um, you know, worship and stuff, ritual stuff. But still, there were sexual sins. And he says, don't do these things because the people whose land you're coming into like they did these things and that's why i'm spewing them out so in the case of the taking of the promised land it's a holy war god is using the people of israel as his um his right arm of justice as it were um his avenging angel of death to to wipe them out but he tells them in other cases when they're um going to war if they're you know if, if it's a city that's not slated for destruction by God's specific command for his specific reasons, they're supposed to, you know, they can make offer terms of peace to them. But if they refuse to accept it, then, you know, they go in. He tells them about, like, not tearing down, like, the fruit-bearing trees, not killing, you know, women and children. Like, yeah, they would take them captive, perhaps. Because if you kill the men, you've taken away everyone who can protect them, provide for them. And it would actually be a mercy where other nations would just level and destroy or they would take slaves, but they would treat them like trash. The Israelites had laws about slavery that they were supposed to remember that they were image bearers of God and they were supposed to treat them well. Right. And if they didn't, you know, if they hurt them or something, if they did damage, them, like they had to release them, you know, mm -hmm. so they had to do justice to them. So for the most part, um, war is something that should be defensive right and even then um the 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 um the warfare is is to be limited you know we would talk about what uh hiroshima nagasaki hiroshima, hiroshima? You could be right. <laughs> I could be right. I could be wrong. I, I'm not. I'm not betting on myself in the pronunciation game. <laughs> so uh, Hiroshima, that city in Japan, the two cities in Japan <laughs> that we that we bombed to oblivion, right? Um, was that just warfare? You're you're killing civilians. You're killing men, women, and children, right? Terrorists and their families, as far as we're concerned. Um, and yet they justified it by saying, well, the damage that could be inflicted on us, on our troops, um, you know, uh, and maybe, you know, other people who are being bombed or whatever would be worse if we didn't do this. Right. And so, but what does God say? <laughs> Did they look to God <laughs> for the answer? Did they look to the scriptures 
for the standard? Did they look to God to help them win the war? Um, or did they take a pragmatic approach? And so I would say the, the bombings that we do, um, the, the disregard for civilian life, those things aren't just warfare. But people tend to take a pragmatic approach to things because, well, it's easier. It's, it's efficient. And for us, it's so sanitized. We're not – you think about all the nations at war in, in Europe, in the Middle East, and you know, in Africa. Like, oh, it's all landlocked countries, right? They're all dealing with different languages, different cultures, different, and they're fighting each other, and, and war is just everywhere for them. We're over here. No one's bothering us. Canada's not bothering us. <laughs> you know, maybe aggravating us every now and then. But, you know, Mexico, they're not – they're not attacking us. We don't have blood in the streets. We don't have our, our, our towns and cities just blasted by bombs. And so we have no regard. That's over there. That's insurgents. I've, some comedian, awful comedian, I'm like, I don't know no insurgents. I, they're just, that's their problem over there. That's just them. They're, we, we name them other things and we forget that they have, um, we forget that they're image bearers of God. So... Does that answer your question somewhat? Yeah. As far as what does war look like? So I saw maybe a helping hand, a question. Um, yeah, like especially with the example that you brought up, um, like that was an example in which we actually initiated like nuclear warfare. And yes. We're still paying for it in just terms of like the threat mm -hmm. that exists between all nations now. Mm -hmm. um, there's also a passage in Ezekiel that relates to the concept that you're talking about in terms of like, and while I was reading it, I felt a lot of um, like the whole social justice movement. Mm -hmm. and there's two various talks about like, okay, if the father practices lawlessness, he will bear the consequences of that lawlessness. Mm -hmm. If the son, whose father practiced lawlessness, practices righteousness, he will bear like he will bear the consequences of righteousness. Right. Um, like, I will not punish, like, the son for the father's actions. I'm just not able to find it, but I have it highlighted somewhere. Um, but it's in Ezekiel. No more. He's set on edge. Yeah. Yeah. Don't ask me for the chapter and verse, but... Ezekiel 33. Tell me I was a page away from it. <laughs> um, no? Uh, oh, 33. What? Now suppose this man fathers a son who sees all the sin that his father has done. He sees and does not do likewise. He does not eat upon the mountains or lift up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel. Does not defile his neighbor's wife. Does not oppress anyone. Exacts no pledge. Commits no robbery. But gives his bread to the hungry and covers the naked with a garment, withholds its hand from iniquity, takes no interest or profit, obeys my rules and walks in my statutes. He shall not die for his father's iniquity. He shall surely live. As for his father, because he practiced extortion, robbed his brother, and did what is not good among his people, behold, he shall die for his iniquity. Um, so, yeah, yet you say, why should not the son suffer for the iniquity of the father? When the son has done what is just and right and has been careful to observe all my statutes, he shall surely live. The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. 
Both that a wicked person turns away from all his sins that he has committed, and keeps all my statutes, and does what is just and right, he shall surely live, he shall not die. None of the transgressions that he has committed shall be remembered against him, for the righteousness that he has done, he shall live. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? But when a righteous person turns away from his righteousness and does injustice, and does, excuse me, does the same abominations that the wicked person does, shall he live? None of the righteous deeds that he has done shall be remembered, mm -hmm. for the treachery of what he uh, of which he is guilty and the sin he has committed, mm -hmm. for them he shall die. Um, I'll just continue reading. <laughs> Yet you say, this is all in Ezekiel 18, uh, The way of the Lord is not just. Hear now, O house of Israel, is my way not just? Is it not your ways that are not just? When a righteous, per righteous person turns away from his righteousness and does injustice, he shall die for it. For the injustice that he has done, he shall die. And again, when a wicked person turns away from the wickedness he has committed and what does what is just and right, he shall save his life. Because he considered and turned away from all the transgression that he committed. He shall surely live, he shall not die. Uh, yet the house of the Israel says, the way of the Lord is not just. O house of Israel, are my ways not just? Is it not your ways that are not just? Um, uh, therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to his ways, declares the Lord God. Repent and turn from all your transgressions, lest iniquity be your ruin. Cast away from you all transgressions that you have committed, and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn and live. And this is like... Especially significant passage because it comes after, like, the ways of kings of Israel who, as soon as, like, a father was righteous, his son was evil, and then his son was righteous, and his son did evil. So it's like, hmm. here are these prophecies coming after, like, these mm -hmm. Right. I mean, um, this is, I mean, this is God's way. He, he says each one is accountable for their own sins. And so you have that example. You have it in the law. You have it reiterated here in Ezekiel. Um, the people are finding fault with God. He says this is this has always been the way. You know, if you turn from your sin, you'll be saved. If you turn from your righteousness, you'll be condemned. All right. Um, we do want to finish well. Uh, you know, we we, we want to um, persevere to the end. And so this is God's promise. And this is what he says regarding the um, the civil magistrates, right? Um, was there any other questions or comments? Erica's like, forget it. Erica doesn't have a question. I don't believe it. <laughs> She's like, I have so many now. <laughs> You'll never get done. Oh no, no. <laughs> let me not. Let me not force it. I'll never get done. <laughs> Leviticus chapter 4 is looking like 21, 22. Um, those years will uh, get us there. Um, so we have to, God puts a, um, a restraint on the state, right? He doesn't put that on himself because before him, all man, all mankind is guilty. Uh, all mankind is deserving of death. He is merciful and he allows us to live any life we have. <laughs> is by his grace uh, and so we need to recognize that um, in the case of Israel taking the promised land uh, these people were guilty um, 
and knowing their history going back to their father Abraham. Uh, Abraham has promised the land, but he's told it'll be 400 years before his descendants take it. He goes, the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. They were so sinful and so wicked, and yet he was so patient. He gave them 400 years, and they did not repent. And so the land was filled with blood, and as Brother Lawrence has shared, <laughs> the blood pollutes the land, right? The blood cries out for justice, cries out for the avenger of blood. And so God, um, through Israel, brought about uh, that justice and um, wiped them out. And yet they still had an obligation to maintain that. And as we all know, they didn't. But so only biblical law prevents the state from execution of sons for the fathers, except in the case of sacrilege. But we're talking about Leviticus 4. And so, like I said, God is not restrained by that. We're all guilty. And so there's this link of um, the congregation and the priest right um and so the the entire congregation was under threat of god's sanctions when a priest sinned there's a covenantal link here between the priest and the people covenantal right we're talking about covenant the priest is the hierarchy he's the mediator he's he's that go between he represents the people um but the people um also have this representation as a body and we see the identical sacrifice, right? They both had to offer a bull. If the priest sinned unintentionally, mind you, um, they had to offer a bull. If the whole congregation sinned unintentionally and was made aware of it, they had to offer a bull. Uh, this comes from the fact that, it, that Israel was a kingdom of priests. The high priest was a priest to the other priests, and then they were priests to a priestly nation. The nation was to serve as priests for the entire pagan world. Are we aware of that? Have we read our Old Testament? <laughs> he said, you know, there would be a nation of priests. They were supposed to share the truth um, to the world, to be uh, salt and light, even back then. And they weren't. What's that? Sunday school today. See? I missed the first half. I have to listen to the recording. <laughs> but... But moving on, <laughs> get out of here with that red herring. <laughs> um, priests sacrifice bulls, civil rulers sacrifice male goats, common men sacrifice female goats. It's been a while since we've read through chapter four, so I'm not going. I'm not going to read through it again. It's a little lengthy. I'm hoping you guys are occasionally perusing that and just keeping it fresh. Um, but these were the things like I, I wanted you to think about why, why, uh, what questions do we start coming up with as we read through? Like why, why does the priest and the congregation have the same offering, right? Why does the civil ruler have less of an offering? Why does the common person have even less of an offering? What are the tie-ins there? What's being symbolized? What's going on? Um, the greater harm to the society required a more costly sacrifice. Um, North also points out that masculinity symbolized rule and femininity. Uh, I'm not going to say it again. Um, the the feminine the feminine uh, sacrifice um, was a symbol of subordination, right? And so, in in terms of authority, you had the bull, right? Because the, the priest was authoritative. The entire congregation was authoritative, right? The ruler was authoritative, um, and yet the, the common person, those they're under they're under submission. Um, keep in mind they're all under submission of God. But go ahead. Okay. Um, so I was 
So when you were saying that man does not pay for the sin of the father and the father does not um, pay for the sin of the son, I meant son does not pay for the sin of the father and then um, fathers do not pay for the sins of their sons. Right. Um, I was kind of thinking of when it comes to a daughter mm-hmm. who um, she commits, I forget we were talking about it a couple of You're talking about ago. the one who was stoned to death on the father's doorstep? Yes. Right. And what do we see there? And we, we have to be careful because sometimes we have this tendency. Virginity. What's that? She lied about her virginity. She lied about her virginity. So there is grace offered uh, you know, in terms of fornication. Um, they're not put to death, right? Um, they can uh, – the person who has seduced the virgin is is bound to marry her unless the father refuses and says, no deal. And then they have to – still pay the bride price the father may be caring for his daughter far longer because of her indiscretion in that in that sense um on the other hand adultery was punishable by death and uh if a woman has um committed fornication and lied about it and presented herself as a virgin to her husband you know because she's lied because she's played the whore as 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 the word says um the the penalty the sin is that much greater the penalty is that much greater and so she is put to death for her crime she's put to death on her father's doorstep because the father was responsible to protect his daughter and so while he doesn't pay the price she pays she bears iniquity it's a, it's her life that's forfeit but he does have a reminder on his doorstep um, of his failure to protect um, and so I, I encourage um, men to think about that in terms of uh, the role of, of husband, the role of father. Like these things, you know, these things in the law point to um, our responsibility. You know, the, the rash of vows is another, another area. Um, there's, another, there's another passage. I don't have the chapter and verse at the moment, but I can get it for you. I always forget. Um, but it talks about if uh, a daughter of a priest, you know, um, orange steps, my man. <laughs> um, if if um, the the family of the priest could have the holy food, right? That was like part of his. That was his living. That was his income, right? So they were entitled to the holy food, but it wasn't something the common people could have, right? It, it was consecrated. It was it was set apart, and so they could have it. If the daughter of a priest gets married. To someone who's not a priest, she's no longer entitled to the um, the priestly food, the holy food. Um, however, if she should be divorced or widowed, and she comes back into her father's household, she can now partake of that holy food. She can. She now. She can. can. Now she can, because now she's under her father's care and provision again. Good job. We would have got there eventually. We will get there eventually. But thank you. Excellent. Leviticus 22. Yeah, I do the same thing. I Google. So I go, just give me a passage. Give me a, a, a phrase. I can get the rest. Um, but that would be impressive. I would be highly impressed if you're whipping that out. I, wow. I've got to hang out with Ashley more. She's got so much. It's something that most people like. I bet you, if you told not, I bet you, if you told ninety-five out of a hundred Christians about that, they'd be like, "What?" <laughs> I bet you they wouldn't know. 
it seems like an obscure text. What, like from Leviticus, like 22? I didn't get that far in my Bible reading. I got to like four and I just gave up on the sacrifices. Here it seems like this obscure text, right, about priestly food and a daughter coming back to the household and being entitled to it. But what's the greater picture there? Um, what, what's an, well, I want to say a greater picture. It's, it's pretty important about the priestly food and the importance of it and the holiness and, and all of that. But it also symbolizes, um, is symbolizing even the right word? It shows the general principle that the father is to provide for his family, for his daughter. So he provides for her until someone comes along and takes on that job, right? Um, I, I've told my girls after, you know, we started homeschooling and we have these men's movie nights and listen to like Vody Bakkum and all these different guys and talking about the role of the husband, the role of the father. And he points out this verse and he's like, here's the thing. Um, <laughs> told my daughter, like, I will care for you. I will protect you. I will provide for you. I will, you know, love you. Um, well, he'll still love her, but protect and provide until such and the love is over once you get married, right? Get out of my face. <laughs> no. Um, until someone else comes along to take on my job, I will protect you. I will provide for you. You don't see them saying, well, listen, you got married. You had something married. Like, you're on your own now, right? If he was alive, if he was well enough, he took her in and took care of her. We know of um, Jacob, right? And... Um, his uh no 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 no. that was another that was unfortunate that was another situation i'm thinking of his father-in-law right laban oh, right laban. who is um rebecca's brother and rebecca's brother laban is something of a scoundrel <laughs> you know he's he's not a good guy but um he was actually providing and caring for his sister you get the impression the father may have been either passed on or just not healthy enough to manage the household affairs. And so he was watching out for his sister and, and you know, providing for her until such time as she went and uh, married Isaac. So he was kind of calling the shots there and how things went down. And now he's providing for his daughters and he's the one saying, well, this is what's going to be. And he provides for them. I'll give you a servant with them and all that. What happens if there is no brother and there's no father? Well, Someone else, I mean, they talk about the kinsman redeemer, the idea of, they had big families back then. <laughs> you had some family member. What about now? I mean, now we have the church. The church is the family of God. I missed something. Yes, it's the church's responsibility to step up, and if there is oh, no milk there. True widows. True widows. Yes, there, there are true widows. Yeah. What is a true widow? A true widow, do you want to turn to it? Yeah. Let's turn to it. Um, remind me. <laughs> true widows. I believe so. Right, because he talks about putting them on the roll. Yeah. So are we first or second? I'll give you a second. Mm -hmm. um, first, 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 first Timothy 5. Okay. First Timothy 5. 5 what? Um, verse, mm, well... We'll start in the first verse. It goes, I think, verse 3 is when it starts. But do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, in all purity. Honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents. For this is pleasing in the sight of God. 
She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, especially for members of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband, having a reputation for good works, if she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, has devoted herself to every good work, but refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry, and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, and manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened, so that it may care for those who are truly widows. So, that gives you a bunch of stuff to unpack, which we're not going <laughs> to unpack fully tonight, but it gives you an idea. Um, we would talk about a widow in terms of, obviously, someone who is legitimate, you know, not necessarily legitimate, it's not the right word. Um, their husband is dead. They're widowed. Um, we would talk about women today who have been abandoned, who are effectually widows, right? Their, the, their protector, their provider has um, um, deserted his duties, his responsibility. But only those who have no one. We're all alone, he says. Right. Right. Um, and so um, in terms of the church, like putting them on the rolls, providing financial support, um, doing all those things, if they have no one, then if they are the church's responsibility. And keep in mind how seriously God talks about um, his concern for the fatherless, the widow, the sojourner. Old Testament, those three are linked all the time. Those who are most likely to be oppressed, taken advantage of, um, to need care, to need protection to need justice. He says, if they cry out to me <laughs> and you, because you have sinned against them, you've oppressed them, you haven't cared for them, I will hear and I will answer and he will judge. And he'll bring judgment on the people for their refusal to show love to those they have an obligation to show love for. So for those who are true widows and they have no one, the church should support them uh, financially, to be there for them, to, to take them into the body. Um, when Job is talking about, his, he's defending his righteousness, um, he says how he has cared for the widow. He has cared for the orphan. He has cared for the, you know, the, the sojourner. These are all manifestations of what righteousness looks like in real life. And he's defending himself saying, about, I have done these things, right? The, so, uh, the sojourner, widows, and then who else? Orphan. The fatherless, the widow, and the stranger. You could put it that way. Um, we have sojourners in our land today, and we call them illegals. But uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna move on from that right now. But I, I've I've mentioned it before. It's been mentioned uh, time and again. We have very funny ideas, according to um, what God would say, you know, uh, as to how we should be treating people. But our whole system is corrupt, and so we're we're so wrong in so many different areas. We need a whole reboot, right? Um, but in the Psalms, it says that God sets the lonely in families, right? So when we see uh, the care that should be given to those who don't have a man to protect, a man to provide, 
can women <laughs> we've had this conversation you know as i'm raising the girls and stuff like that um what the expectations are for the future right um you know we have people who think about being career people and independent and our society today america is all about that rugged individualism and men and women are equal and just hooey with the bible right no everyone is on their own and we live in an age that's still saturated by the gospel and and the common grace that's come with it and so we have some of the protections that, I mean, you see some of the things that the horrors that happened in, in the Old Testament, right? Dinah going off into the country to visit with the other women and she gets, you know, attacked and raped, right? Allegedly. Allegedly. No. Yes, I'm sure there are. Um, she was taken. She was taken. I mean, he was speaking sweetly to her. So did right. he seduce her? Did it, you know, was it whatever? Um, yeah. Right. And so they were going to work out a marriage and a couple of the brothers had other intentions and that's so terrible. yeah that's a yeah they i mean so is there a responsibility we were talking about Blaine and rachel right and yeah just his responsibility they thought it was their responsibility right that's too. why abraham kept saying to sarah say you're my brother so they would they'd have to go through him right because it's his brother's responsibility it's the brother's responsibility to care for her. <laughs> if he was the husband, they would just kill him. <laughs> so now she's a widow <laughs> and eligible for marriage. Um, but the brother, oh, well, we'll just give him gifts or something like that. That whole, I don't want to get into it, that whole story with Abraham is bizarre to me. And to my, well, to my modern, my modern mindset. <laughs> um, but we'll, we'll talk about that another time. We'll talk about that after. Does it though? Yeah. So there should be protection, right? There should be provision. I mean, we, we see, like, the horrible things. Um, Sodom and Gomorrah, right? Um, men surrounding the house. Not even interested in the women. They're interested in the men, right? I mean, just the, the perversion and the and deviation. And there's no 911. <laughs> there's no phones. There's, no, you know, um, there's just a whole bunch of guys. There's not even guns. You got swords, maybe. <laughs> and it's, you know, it's easier to shoot a bunch of people than it is to stab a bunch of people. I'm not saying it can't be done, but it's, you know. Um, so you have that, right? You have that situation. You have in the situation of judges where... Um, you know, the men of the city see that they've taken in a stranger and his, and his concubine, you know, and they're interested in, in, in knowing everyone. Horror shows. And now we have, you know, common grace of the gospel. What? what? And pride parades, yeah. Yeah, we're, we're getting away from the common grace. We really are. Um, but we have the police force, right? We, we have um, uh, different things. I mean, we have, we have the blessing of firearms, now, who would think a gun is a blessing from God? But his gun is a great equalizer, right? Oh, yeah. Someone who is smaller, not able to fight, but if she's got good aim... Do she... you think it should have to be registered? No. No. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. It's not the government's business. Come on, talk to me after. Okay. You. you know, this is being... Don't say my name! This... this is being recorded. Yes. We're just saying hypothetically... Hypothetically. If we did own weapons, <laughs> they would be registered, right? But no, that, I mean, that's more government overreach. That's a uh, desire for control. It's a mess. But there's also, you know what part of the problem is? Um, thank you. The problem ties us back into Leviticus. <laughs> there's no sense of responsibility 
corporately. I'm only responsible for me and I'm not responsible for other people, right? And that's not what God's word says. God says that the priest can bring guilt on the entire congregation and the entire congregation can bring guilt on themselves. Did every single person have to sin to bring that guilt on themselves? Or did enough of them have to be going astray or not realize something be un... Because keep in mind, it's unintentional, right? They didn't not with a high-handedness, you know, not with open rebellion. They just f forgot or something, they, something that they weren't aware of. But God is still holy. <laughs> Ignorance is no excuse. They have to be aware. It's their responsibility to be aware. He's a holy God. We should approach him with reverence and awe. And so we are responsible for one another to be aware. To, as I said in the beginning when we started talking about Leviticus, keep in mind how this is being presented to the people. The priests... And the people are being told the law together. The priest and the people are hearing what the priests are responsible for and what the people are responsible for. What's the purpose of that? There's no secret hidden knowledge, right? God's revelation is for his people and he wants everyone to be aware and he wants everyone to keep each other accountable. There should be a, a cooperation and an understanding of corporate responsibility as a people, right? Um, Nowadays, we don't trust ourselves um, and we don't want the responsibility of having to interact with others, to keep accountable, to protect. We don't want to have the obligation to plead for justice for the fatherless and the widow. We want the police to do that. We want the courts to do that. We want the social worker to do that. We don't want to do it, but it's our responsibility. So when it comes to... I'm sorry. Do you have a question? Nope. She's I, like, was, I, I got was, some comments. No, I was just agreeing with you. Like it's it's not um, it's not the legal officials. When sin is committed against you, we need to speak out against sin, and we need to not be afraid, especially mm -hmm. when there's slander and false accusations. Mm -hmm. um, God has equipped us with everything that we need to live mm -hmm. righteously, and when those who come before us accuse us of false accusations or whatever it may be that we stand in the word of god mm -hmm. and that we do i mean every day is a battle every mm -hmm. day is a battle against mm -hmm. the wickedness uh no every day is a fight against the wicked whether it's verbal or whether it's spiritual i mean mm -hmm. we're fighting evil forces Satan we are. is trying to bring us down and we are weak in the flesh mm -hmm. and it's only in christ we do have to speak out against anything in your life, mm -hmm. any injustice, whether it's at work, whether it's people slandering your name, whether it's, I mean, Christ said it's going to come. We, so stand, uh, stand bold. No. Uh, no. What, what is disagree. this? Disagree. What's that? We're supposed to suffer some injustice. We do suffer. No, no, no. no. But we don't no, 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 no. suffer. We're supposed to finally. suffer. Yes, yes, yes. We are supposed to suffer some injustice. It's better to be wronged. Also. Mm -hmm. It's better to be wronged mm -hmm. than bring shame. Yeah, in regards but to the church. No, no. Why would you suffer right. silently? Like you're you're right. you're, you're, no, you're I'm just saying. I spoke to pastor today. All right. Hang on. We're going to – we can discuss that part later on. Yeah. I'd be happy right. to. Um, in terms of suffering some injustices, um, Paul is speaking like in the context of the church with the Corinthians, like you guys are suing one another, right? Like they recognize, 
What's that? Okay. They're recognizing, because keep in mind, when when the the church has grown, the early church is established and growing, these people were known as Christians, right? Because they didn't fit in, right? They were, um, you know, the, the Jews call them apostates. Uh, the Gentiles call them like, you know, atheists, right? They don't worship any, they don't worship their gods. So they kind of stuck out. And if these people who are Christians are professing Christ and they're doing things differently, and yet they're suing each other, like, well, I guess your religion, your God isn't much better than anyone else's because we all have problems. And so he says, um, you guys, first of all, you're going to judge angels, right? You can't handle, you don't have anyone who's wise enough to handle these issues yourself. Um, but brother goes against brother to court, right? And before unbelievers and goes that the name of God is being blasphemed among the Gentiles. He goes, it would be rather, it would be better to rather be wrong, right? To suffer the injustice, to bring any reproach on the name of Christ, because someone who is professing to be a believer has done you wrong. Suffer the wrong and, and allow Christ to repay later on, right? So that is in, in particular talking about Christian, like people within the church um, wronging one another. Right. But I feel like Krista was talking about more so in general. Like in, in general, like yes. Let's say you're in your workplace and that's a public place right. and um, you're suffering an injustice mm -hmm. where there's false accusations yeah. against yeah. you and your work ethic and it's like... Okay, are you supposed to just suffer silently? Because there's times it, that you should wisdom. stand up. For it is wisdom. It's but wisdom. We don't always keep our mouths shut, and we we stand for righteousness, and that's a problem. We don't. We can't continually keep our mouths shut. Like when we have stuff burdened on our face, like oh, you need to do this unethical situation. Like no, I'm not doing it. Do we as Christians just keep our mouths shut and remain silent and go on with what is? Well, God that's, that's, says that's, wrong? That's, a, that's a different situation than what you said. You said okay. if someone wrongs you. Okay, right? someone wrongs you. Oh, wait, stop. If there's a non believer who wrongs you, yeah. right? You don't need to you can you don't need to stand on your rights. You know what I mean? You don't always need to stand on your rights. Yeah. It takes wisdom in terms of the situation. Sure. You know? Sure. Like there are times where you do stand on your rights. Mm -hmm. yeah. Paul did. Yeah. And there are yeah. other times where you don't stand on your rights, where, like Paul did. Yeah. You know, like it takes wisdom in the given situation. Right. Right. Yeah. There's times where, I mean, we're told like it, it's better to suffer. I mean, if you're suffering for certain things because you're a Christian, you know, mm -hmm. maybe you're getting mistreated um, specifically because you're a believer. Right. Did Jesus stand on his rights? Well? Right. No, he did not. No, he did. No. He suffered silently. Right. Did like, he ever acknowledge that he was guilty of X, Y, and Z? No. No, we're, we're, we're talking about his entire life yeah. where he would be mocked, he would be scorned, sure. he'd be, you know, they would attack him. Right. right. So he's saying in certain experience, certain, certain, um, certain circumstances, <laughs> certain circumstances, <laughs> it's, a, it's appropriate to stand for what's right and to look for justice to be meted out, right? Um, there's times where that's appropriate. And then there's other times where it's better to let it go, right? Um, sometimes you won't have a choice. You know, in Hebrews it talks about, you know, you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property because they were being persecuted and it was the state, you know, and there was no one to appeal to except for God. And they just recognized, you know what? This is happening because we're Christians and our Lord and Savior who died and rose again <laughs> told us 
Blessed are you when you're persecuted for my name's sake, because they persecuted the prophets who came before you, right? And so he says, if the world hates you, it's because they hated me first. So we can take joy and comfort in certain injustices where we don't have to fight it. Sometimes we can't. Sometimes there there is no higher uh, appeal except for God, and we recognize God will repay. And so we put our hope in him and we enjoy that. And there are times if we're being mistreated because we are Christians, um, it's not always fruitful um, to get justice and get them, well, let's get them punished because they have done wrong. It doesn't mean we can never go to the civil magistrate. It doesn't mean that we can never um, receive justice. Um, but showing love and showing mercy can sometimes be used to soften. You know, when you when you repay um, evil with good, you overcome evil with good. You heap burning coals on their heads to you know to to stall the onslaught of your enemy. So we can at times overlook an injustice and deal with that. Um, but in terms of our our society, like obviously the situation came up recently where you know crimes are being committed, right? Things are being done that are unjust, um, unjust, unjust. <laughs> it's injustice because it's unjust. Um, <laughs> such a good speaker. Uh, Part of the problem in our society is today is we have become a society that has clogged the channels of justice with things that have no business being figured out, regulated, judged, and, you know, taken care of by the state. So we have so many things that are bogging down our court systems, right? Um, we talked about last time about, well, marijuana has been legalized, good thing or bad thing, right? <laughs> And, you know, it seems counterintuitive, but it's actually a good thing that it was um, legalized because God did not put a, um, he didn't put a ban on that. Well, a, a prohibition on it in the sense of, I shouldn't say that exactly, marijuana itself can be used for good purposes, medicinal purposes, um, all sorts of great, helpful, beneficial reasons. The idea of recreational high, the idea of trying to alter your state of mind, is a sin against God, but it's not a crime. If you commit a crime while you're high, then you pay for that crime, right? Um, but we clog the court system, we clog the jails with people who have, you know, sinned before God, perhaps, but not committed a crime before God that demands what they call justice. Because we're so backlogged with all these different things, people are fighting lawsuits, all all this nonsense that's being dealt with. When real injustice happens, um, it's often not dealt with swiftly, speedily, to be the proper deterrent against the wicked who need the law because Paul says the law is good when used lawfully. The lawful is not, uh, I'm sorry, the law is not for the godly, but for the wicked. Right? Um, it's for all those people who break God's commands. It's for them who do terrible things. Um, if we use the law properly, one of the, um, the purposes of the law is to restrain the wickedness in man's heart. And so we've lost sight of that. And we've lost sight of what, what justice is. And we should be passing these on. When we have opportunities, 
we should be speaking the truth. Um, you think it's so overwhelming. Our system is so messed up. I mean, we, the, um, me and Lawrence and Warren, I'm talking about going to like a Brookhaven town meeting to talk about their budget was like a thousand pages. Like, uh, <laughs> just, like, what are you going to do? You know, um, but start small, get involved, figure out um, how you can speak to these things. If our society as a, as a nation, as America, as we know it, crumbles, Maybe it's all for the best after all, because we can rebuild. Sometimes it might be better to wipe the slate clean and start fresh. Um, but we pray for revival. We don't know the devastation that will happen if our society crumbles as it is. But we certainly need revival. We certainly need reformation. We certainly need God's law. Um, you know, so we're far from... You had a question before, and I was addressing it. I'm not sure if I finished addressing it, but we have a responsibility right families have a responsibility men to protect to provide right um and, and we don't see men being like autonomous in scripture either right i mean like they're either part of their family household and and you know contributing to that or they're starting their own family and starting their own you know um further on what the prodigal son we see as an example of someone who of a, of a young man who is autonomous like give me my inheritance and he goes off to um and he blows it right he goes to a far country where no one would see him uh, and does whatever he wants and then he you know has to come to his senses and come back and, and repent but we need each other we're responsible for one another you know um the the smart aleck response of cain to god am i my brother's keeper like a little smart out response because his brother was a keeper of the flock right but he was his brother's keeper he was responsible for him um not to mention the fact that he murdered him but this idea of family you know, kinsman redeemer we see this pattern and precept over and over again we have a responsibility to care for one another to be there for one another and so nowadays we have the church because you'll see a dividing line in families where jesus says you know the enemies of a man's household will you know um, a man's own enemies will be those of his own household, right? Because Christ comes with a sword. Um, How is the brother, his brother's uh, keeper? Like, is, is it the father, the head of the household? And then, uh, right, but he still has an obligation to his family. Oh, <laughs> you know? Was Cain older? Yes, Cain was older. So then, like, that's his younger brother. But he, family does have a responsibility towards one another. Um, I mean, it was in Proverbs, a brother is born for adversity. Now, growing up, when I read that, I was like, yeah, my brother does seem to be born for my adversity. And I had a real, because of my own personal experience, I had a misunderstanding of what that verse meant. I was like, yeah, he is. <laughs> he's, he's born for adversity, all right? And then I was like, oh, wait, he's there to help me in times of adversity. I see. You jerk. <laughs> If you've ever noticed, if you have siblings, if have you ever, like, you might fight like cats and dogs, right, with a sibling, but has anyone outside your family tried to mess with your sibling? It's like, oh, no, you don't. <laughs> we can fight each other, but you can't fight them. And so we stick together and we look out for one another. Um, we're family. That's what family is meant to look out for each other. And God says he sets the lonely in families. There shouldn't be lonely people in the church, right? Um 
Jesus tells him, you know, whoever gives up, you know, father and mother and brothers and sisters for my sake will receive a hundredfold, right? Um, because they come into the church and now you're surrounded by brothers and sisters and aunts and uncles and moms and dads. You have people who are part of your life who are now members of one family, one body. And so we should not be lonely. We're in a very bizarre society that thinks that's somehow a virtue if we can make it on our own feet. No one can do that. And, and then we look to the state and act like we're still looking, standing on our own feet. It's sort of um, silly. Wow, I think I've gotten a paragraph of my notes. How are we doing? Questions? Comments? No? Okay. I want to move just a little bit further, just to say that we were able to move a little bit further. So there's a covenantal link between the priests and the people. They're identical sacrifice. We talked about that. Um, talked about the the value of the sacrifice. More uh, greater harm to the society pre uh, required a more costly sacrifice. Um, also, the symbol uh, the symbolism of rule and subordination. Here's something I think is really important that we have to pay attention to, and I want you to be thinking about, and we'll probably close it off here. As you read through the chapter and we think about the sacrifices for um, each each uh, segment right of society from the priest to the congregation to the ruler to the the, the commoner um, the priestly sins were a greater threat to Israel's safety than sins by the civil rulers follow that the sin of the priests had to be sacrificed atoned for with the sacrifice of a bull and the civil ruler just a uh, a male goat right um so his sin was a greater threat to, to israel's safety than the sins of the rulers the sacrificial link between the priests and the people indicates that the priest had sufficient representative authority for his unintentional sin to bring the people under god's negative sanctions the civil ruler representative authority was lesser in degree. Um, when we think about that, um, keep in mind what was the purpose? What was the purpose of the sacrifice? Right as we as we read through this, um, the sacrifice was to to purify, to make atonement. Um, the priest had to go further into uh, the tabernacle to to sprinkle um, blood so that God would continue to dwell and God would not bring sanctions. Um, and, and the sanction could just be God removing, and that would be, that would be the most severe sanction, right? God removing, keep in mind, God is omnipresent, right? He's everywhere. Um, but when he removes himself, it's talking about um, the, the protective way that he is dwelling with these people. He's removing his protection. He's removing his covering. And so that would, when he did that, and, um, you know, we talk about uh, in Ezekiel, we see that, like, he removes himself um, from the temple. And what happens? The enemy comes in and destroys, right, and just lays waste uh, to the place. Um, so this is about sanctions. It's about God not not leaving um so the the link between the priest and the people indicates the priest had the uh his sufficient representative authority for his unintentional sin brought the people under god's negative sanctions in a in a, in a worse way a, a more dangerous way than even the civil ruler 
says the first few verses of Leviticus 4 show a closer judicial link between the priesthood and the covenanted society than between the ruler and the covenanted society. You know, when we talk about like, oh, we're, you know, we think about, um, well, we'll get to that later on. Uh, the conclusion, the conclusion here is that the church, the church is more covenantally important in Israel than the state, right? The people of God as, <laughs> um, worshipers of God, right? As, um, as the church, as worshipers of God it was more important than the, the politics uh, of the time. The unintentional sin of the priest was treated by God as comparable to the unintentional sin of the whole congregation. The unintentional sin of the ruler was treated on par with the unintentional sin of the average citizen. The conclusion, the laxity of the priesthood regarding their personal sins threaten greater direct negative consequences for the citizens of the old covenant Israel, more so than the moral or judicial laxity of the civil authorities. Um, mm -hmm. What does that mean? <laughs> Go ahead, Sarah. Well, it's not like our situation today goes against the hospital of God. You see, the church is kind of a mess today, and if the church was doing its responsibility, the political climate would probably be better. Probably be better, yes. Um, I mean, there's times where we see, like, you know, we see China, right? We see the persecution of the church in China. Um, but China was never a Christian nation to our knowledge, right? Um, and so the, the church growing up in that, um, being salt and light, they're being persecuted, right? But um, the U.S. started with a, a, a worldview that was saturated with biblical principles. Um, the gospel had had a profound impact. Um, and so they're experiencing more blessings. And yet as the church has turned away from God, the church, um, <laughs> the society has crumbled, right? Um, and judgment does begin with the household of God because the people in the church weren't concerned um, about their sins, their holiness, the holiness of their um their leaders <laughs> what do we see going on in society um if wicked rulers had somehow come into uh power right um god would deal with them he could deal with that ruler and take them out of the way right um and and just provide a new ruler for the church but what happens when the church has gone astray you know um talked about not not atoning for that not not being aware of that um god would leave his dwelling place and what does god talk about in revelation taking his lampstand away from the church right um inviting judgment so i mean there's still believers in that body but it's no longer a church it's no longer um having that impact and so we have to recognize as we consider everything going on in our society what's the bigger threat What's the bigger threat? <laughs> the state of the church or the state of the state? Church. church, right? If the church would repent, right? If the church would turn from its sin, um, there would be, God would, would move on <laughs> our behalf. So is it like two reasons why the priest is uh, more harshly dealt with? Because he should know better more so, and also he's the representative and the mediator? Right, right. So... Um, this goes to show just just how holy God is, right? Um, and keep in mind, this is all about unintentional sin and the sanctions 
the negative sanctions that come from just being careless, right? This isn't a high-handed sin. This isn't open-handed rebellion against God, spitting at him, you know, um, purposely doing things. This is just not knowing what we should know and not showing reverence for God by knowing those things and paying careful attention to it. Um, when it talks about, you know, we're going to have to give an account for every thoughtless word. <laughs> God doesn't change, right? Um, these things are important. And so we need to have um, a perspective that understands like what God said in the Old Testament, he says in the New Testament, you shall be holy as I am holy, right? And so God calls us to holiness. And when we aren't holy, there are negative sanctions that go along with it. God is a covenant-keeping God. And as we recognize that there's laws that manifest like they show, they demonstrate God's holy character. Um, when we violate those things, the sanctions come, the, the consequences come. And so we need to be aware of that. So next time we're going to start talking about the people corporately as a source of the authority of the rulers who represented them. That sounds exciting, doesn't it? Yay! responsibility corporate responsibility responsibility for our rulers and we can't just say oh well can't fight city hall god says no you should um i'll let you just dwell on that until next time what no you watch your mouth this is being recorded <laughs> <laughs> we talk about that after the tape is closed no, grief. i'm gonna get myself in so much trouble all right we're just having a good old time here so let's close in prayer and then we can have some um we can have some discussion or you guys can just have coffee and cake and whatnot. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for this time. We thank you for your word. Uh, Father, help us to just have a better appreciation, um, Lord, for who you are, how holy you are. Lord, how merciful you are that you make provision um, for us in our unintentional sins. Lord, you have mercy on, on our rebellion against you um, through the blood of your son. Lord, there was no sacrifice offered in the Old Testament for the high-handed sin, and yet you have offered your Son and cleansed us of even our, our wicked rebellion, Lord, that was um, overt. So, Father, we thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your word. We thank you that um, we don't have to go about in the dark trying to understand how we ought to live faithfully before you. You have shown us. And so we pray that we would um, seek to understand your word better, that we might love you more, that we might serve you better, that we would bring honor and glory to our King, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. You have been listening to the Reformed Rookie Podcast, where we aim to teach Reformed theology to beginners or rookies. Be sure to look us up on the web at www.reformedrookie.com, where you will find many more learning tools and aids to help you grow in your understanding of all things Reformed. And remember, Semper Reformanda. Dr. Luther, are you prepared to retract these writings? In some, I discuss faith and good works. If I were to retract these, I should be denying accepted Christian truths. Martin Luther, you have not yet answered the question. Will you recant, or will you not? Here it is. I am bound to my beliefs by the texts of the Bible. My conscience is captive to the Word of God. I cannot and I will not recant. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me.